This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It is Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. It is no surprise when Matt takes an idea and stretches it until it's so thin you could wrap it around a nanotube. We've had Ask Matt Anything. We've had Ask Matt More Anything. And this week's MSP is Ask Myself Anything. Matt, what does that even mean? Hey, Jeff. Well, you know, over the last few (laughs) weeks, like you said, we've had ask Matt anything. We've had more of that. So I've been taking listeners' questions. Mm -hmm. Um, Friends have been asking me questions. You even asked me a bunch of questions last week as well. (laughs) Um, The only person who hasn't actually asked me any questions, apart from the 7 billion people on the planet who have no interest in asking me any questions, is, of course, myself. So I thought today, you know, I'd challenge myself and ask myself anything. Most people would call that the quiet reflection. I'm not sure that it's radio. Still, this won't be the first time we've broken the word entertainment. What do you want to ask yourself? Well, you know, we're getting to that part of the year where, you know, we do a lot of the roundups, we do the best ofs, and we start to think about, you know, what kind of technology we expect to see in the next year, in 2020. Mm. Uh, It's possible even that future matt is going to make uh, an oh, appearance on the no. show yeah exactly hopefully not um <laughs> we'll try and get the year off to a good start put him off till the middle of the year but you know one of the recurring questions that came through and the, the the previous ama episodes it was you know the the idea about privacy it was that whole idea of switching off and technology encroaching into uh into our lives these kind of different aspects of things and you know, that that gets me thinking because I have to ask myself questions like, you know, do I actually use technology well? Mm. Uh, do I uh, overuse technology? You know, do I look for a solution that has a basis in technology <laughs> when there's actually a much simpler way to, to do it? So uh, a case in point, last night I spent 10 minutes looking for the remote control to turn the TV off. It completely escaped my attention <laughs> that I could do it manually so of course Mm. i went over to the tv and i didn't even know where the button was i had to actually (laughs) run my hands around (laughs) the panel to find the buttons and it made me ask myself because i've had this tv for you know the best part of 10 years have i ever switched it on or off manually before and i'm not sure that i ever have so where's the remote i still don't know i've got (laughs) no idea where the remote is but at least i know how to turn the tv on and off now um but you know, that brings you to, to start thinking about, you know, how much mm. technology is designed like that. You know, I've got other devices where half the functions are on the, the machine, half of the functionality is on the remote or on a, a phone screen. I've got, you know, some of those Bose mm. audio streamer things. Fantastic devices, but without the app or the remote control, yeah. all you can do is <laughs> turn it on and off. You really can't do anything with it. So, you know, is there a lot of technology that's that's doing this. And too much tech is designed like that? Well, I, I think so. I mean, look at um, the new um, Apple MacBooks. Um, they've, uh, they've got that smart tab, mm. that interactive smart tab. Now they've brought back the, uh, the, 
the hard escape key, the physical <laughs> escape key. But wasn't it obvious that people mm. would actually want that? They don't want these occasion-sensitive menu bars. They just need these kind of hard keys for, for things. Um, so, yeah, it does make you think, who are these devices actually being made for? So sticking with Apple, we had the the, the new, was it the Mac Pro that yeah. uh, came out this week? Yeah. And in its most high-spec version, it costs more than fifty thousand US dollars. Um, obviously, that's not aimed at consumers, but as somebody pointed out on uh, Facebook, you can buy a Tesla Cybertruck for that for the cost of a new Apple computer. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. And they will charge you four hundred US dollars to have it on wheels. Oh yeah, yeah. I saw. <laughs> so it I saw comes the, without I saw wheels. The wheels. And of course, when you buy the um, the, I think it's the five thousand US mm. dollar display. You still have to buy a stand for it. Which is $1,000. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we've lost the battle between form and function then. Well, you know, on last week's show, I actually defended oh, printers, yes. um, you know, Horror. and we talked about the complexity, <laughs> um, you know, how difficult it is to actually make a, a printer that, that functions. But we also have to look at have our devices become so minimal that they've become, you know, effectively useless. So we were sold on this kind of myth of the touchscreen being highly efficient mm. and very interactive. But today, more and more devices are being <laughs> sold with, you know, pen technology. So, you know, you had uh, Steve Jobs telling us for years how rubbish it was to have a mouse, how, uh, you know, we don't need input devices like pens. Yet, he, you know, the biggest selling point of the, the MacBook Pros now mm. is the interactive pen. We're seeing so many devices using the, these these tools. So have we gone a bit too far? Isn't that the bridge until everything becomes fully voice controlled? Well, everyone knows that I'm a, a fan mm. of this kind of jump to voice control technology, even though I don't have much voice control technology <laughs> in my house because a lot of it links back to companies that are just listening to what you're doing, mm. which I'm not a huge fan of. Um, but yeah, speaking is the most efficient form of communication we have. Otherwise, we'd do this show by email. Uh, you know, it would be even more drawn out than it currently is. Mm. Um, but what happens when we get to that revolution and there are people whose voices can't actually be recognized? So if we have this kind of voice-activated world, what happens to the people whose voices can't be recognized? Mm. The people with disabilities? Well, not just people with um, disabilities, um, people who've got accents. Mm. I mean, most Malaysians know how difficult it is to get voice recognition technology to understand English in a Malaysian accent. Yeah. Uh, you could have people who have speech impediments. It could even be as simple as, you know, people who haven't really slept. Yeah. You know, you have that slurriness to, to your voice. Um, we can't all be best all the time, no matter what Melania Trump thinks. Um, you know, what happens if you go out, for example, Jeff, <laughs> and uh, you've had a couple of drinks, of course, you take a grab home because... You're a responsible person. Um, but what happens if the front door and your alarm system don't recognize your voice because you've had one beer too many? Yeah. Do you mm. have to sleep outside your own house because you can't prove to a door that you are who you say you are? So you're worried about people being left behind? Well, we've already sort of seen the start of this um, two-tiered society, this uh, technology haves and technology have-nots, and mm. it's largely based around 
people who can afford things, people who can't afford things. But it isn't just individuals. We're seeing entire nations slipping behind this divide as well. But we're seeing these big underclasses uh, starting to develop in richer countries as well. Um, but what we're also seeing beyond that is that some countries are using the privilege of access to technology actually as a social lever. So they can deny you access to government services mm. according to your behavior. So it becomes this lever and mechanism of control. And this is only going to get worse. Well, even though we don't like to think of it, the technology that we have now is quite basic mm. compared to you know what we can see coming over the, the next sort of few decades. Uh, and in an automated future, access to this technology is going to be critical to participating in, you know, daily life, uh, whether it be jobs, uh, whether it's to do with getting housing, accessing education, even being able to access your own money and use and spend your own money or having the privilege of being paid, a lot of this is going to depend on your access to the technology. So the gaps in the society start to, to widen even further when you look at things like DNA modding and uh, gene editing technology. You know, we've spoken before about the emergence of a new kind of human elite species that is largely based on being wealthy. Uh, and this is going to be especially important in a society where there are going to be more costs, um, but there's also going to be less work. So the mm. people who have the resources are going to enhance themselves and they're going to have a bigger chance of finding those those very few jobs. Uh, I didn't actually mean to start the show <laughs> like this today. I'm kind of jumping the gun a bit. Mm. Um, what, what was the original question? Why are we letting you ask yourself questions? Okay, well, I mean, I don't want to get, you know, too meta about it mm. and start pulling down the fourth wall or whatever the, the quantum computing <laughs> version of that is, I don't know, a sixth dimensional warp impossibility. Um, no, but, you know, sometimes I have to pause and I have to ask myself, do these shows actually do any good? You know, it's mm. very easy just to sit here. We have a bunch of talking points. Um, we can chat about stuff for 20 minutes. But, you know, does it really add any value? Are we kind of educating anyone? Are we challenging or changing anybody's opinions or you know are we just broadcasting to an echo chamber and reinforcing the the divides that already exist are you expecting me to have the answer no of course <laughs> not and i don't really have one um mm. either you know there's that whole thing as well about looking at the past to help see the future which is something that that people uh kind of sometimes overlooked. Mm. There was an interesting story uh, this week about um, younger people today not knowing uh, how much wildlife there used to be in the world. You know, every generation remembers there being uh, more butterflies when they were kids and mm. more birds. Not in that golden age, everything was better kind of sense, but in terms of physical memories. And this has actually uh, been uh, identified as uh, a thing called shifting baseline syndrome. It was first illustrated by the academic Daniel Pauley at the University of British Columbia back in uh, 1995. And his findings on this, because, of course, uh, it was just supposition at the time, but his findings are actually slowly being borne out by research that's been conducted over the last kind of 20, 25 years. Mm. Because every generation considers the natural abundance of their age as the norm. Well, yeah, if you're born into a world that has 200 tigers... 
200 is the number of tigers that there have always been. Mm. Um, so in these subsequent studies, newer generations actually find it hard to picture more than the norm that they were brought mm. up with, which is why, you know, when you see pictures of anglers and it goes from generation to generation, they all look really happy with the fish <laughs> they've caught. But three generations ago, the fish were way bigger mm. than the next generation and the generation after that, because that norm has changed. You think, wow, I've caught the biggest fish that it's possible to catch. You don't think that two generations before mm. the fish was twice as big. You know, the, the memory that things used to be bigger slips from from view. So the idea of clouds of butterflies becomes this fantastical thing that you only see in uh, magic realism movies yeah. as CGI. You don't think of it as something that actually happened to people. And I kind of wonder if the same baseline syndrome also applies to technology. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you a question because, mm -hmm. you know, there's 10-year age gap, roughly, <laughs> uh, between the two of us. Um, what are your memories of the technology of your childhood? The first thing that comes to my mind is this thing called the Viewmaster, okay. which, you know, you had one of these binoculars thing where you put a film in and yep. then you could flip it through. different. And I had like a Michael Jackson thriller music video thing. That, for me, mind-boggling because I had it. Okay. But I always had, like, I've always wanted like a hoverboard, like, something that I could travel around. I love skateboards. So a hoverboard for me was like the dream when I was sitting in my childhood. Okay, but what about um, things like computers and access oh. to that kind of technology as well? I mean, what do you kind of remember being around the home when you were when you were a kid? I was, I had a Windows 3.1. Okay. And it was alien to me. It was tough. Like it, it was clunky, it was big, it was beige in color. It's boring it was really boring i couldn't do anything with it no so and if you look at that 10 years between the two mm. of us 10 years um <laughs> and the difference is even more marked you know when i was a kid people still had black and white tvs oh, um mm. i did have that yeah. yeah 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 um you know if you had a portable tv most people had color but if you had a portable tv it was probably going to be black and white Obviously, people didn't have computers in their home, no internet. Um, there weren't even any malls for me. I lived in uh, mm. Hicksville. Wow. You know, music was on vinyl and tape. Um, there were three TV channels. There were four when I was in my teens. Um, we were just on the cusp of VHS coming in. So, you know, before that, you could only watch Star Wars if mm. you went to see it at a movie theater. Mm. Uh, and home appliances were something that you had to repair. So, you know, I've watched all the digital technologies come in and that, that journey has been a massive one. And it's even bigger for people in the generations before me. Mm. So you wonder what the generations of today would remember about the tech they grew up with? Well, yeah, it's that same shifting baseline syndrome. Mm. So has the technology shifted massively, say, from... 1995 to 2000, uh, 2005, do people see that in that generation as being a gradual evolution or is it a, a huge change? So one of the discussions I had, I think, last week with a group of uh, friends was, has the purpose of going out changed? You know, when I was of that age, <laughs> um, Monday to Thursday, you know, we'd go out and play pool and mm. play darts and chat with friends. Friday and Saturday night, you know, you could you'd go to places where you could potentially meet someone where you maybe could find a partner. Because there were no dating apps. And definitely no hookup apps. Um, <laughs> the, the closest we got was that movie uh, uh, Weird Science where 
nerds build their own lady. Um, it's actually less creepy than it sounds. Actually, maybe it's not yeah. less creepy than it sounds. I think it's actually pretty creepy. Um, but, you know, here's a generation whose mating habits can actually be kept separate from their social lives. They mm. can do all of their dating on the apps. And when they actually go out with friends, they don't have that pressure of looking for someone. They just spend the time yeah. with, with the people. So there's this huge generational shift. And you wonder how they view the transition. Well, even though uh, that's kind of fairly pointless because, um, you know, really we've got to wait till they reach your age or, or my age because we've got no idea where the technology is going to end up. We know where it started. So maybe their experience to that point is more of a, a gentle transition than the brutal shock I said that it had been for older generations. But will that still be true in 30 years time when, of course, I will probably be dead and gone? <laughs> uh, and will there be an even larger gap between the technology they had as kids and the technology of the day. And who knows, maybe I won't be gone. Maybe I'll still be yeah. making these shows mm. from the cloud. Mm. Well, you can really feel all those positive vibes flowing through today's show. Hopefully the clouds will have cleared a little bit and maybe we'll even get a burst of sunshine when we come back in just a moment. Also, we've got a PS4 a giveaway coming up after that's, this. That's Jeff trying to yeah, yeah. Uh, lift your spirits <laughs> for part two of the show. BFM 89.9. Beats, funk, mixtapes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. And we're back today on MSP. We're letting Matt ask himself questions. So far, it sounds as though he's the one of the verge of a nervous breakdown. So let's try and steer this into sunnier territory. Do you think we deserve the technology we have, Matt? Well, there's a lovely story on the MIT Tech Review this week. I'm not going to go into it because mm. um, we're going to talk about it a bit more in uh, Geeks. But it's about uh, people and apps and uh, having accidents. So, <laughs> you know, the, the issue of whether we are, whether we deserve that tech, whether we're too dumb or whatever, it's a difficult question. Mm. Um, you know, so we go back to that idea: is it because? For example, mobile screens are really impractical. Is that one of the reasons we're having the accidents? Uh, will the move to screenless technology help that? Um, but of course, all of these things, you know, we talked about the exclusion of people from the technology as well. But this all also links back to the idea of privacy. As in, do we know what we're giving up? Well, yeah, I've got a friend who says he doesn't care about data mining. He's happy to let social media companies... Um, pretty much do anything with his information as long as he gets the service for free. He isn't worried about cameras. He isn't worried about surveillance. Um, he's happy to have ads that are targeted to his preference. And I asked him, you know, have you thought this through? Have you thought through the long-term implications of this? And I have to say, I think he has. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you think we've reached the point where people simply don't care. Well, that's the point. I think my friend doesn't care. Um, you know, um, but whether or not that's true, it doesn't make it less dangerous. I mean, take something like mental health awareness. You know, we keep mm -hmm. being told that we're about to face this tsunami of tech-linked mental health problems. Uh, those same issues, whether it's anxiety, depression, eating disorders, 
they can affect your health insurance premiums, your eligibility for jobs, mm. whether you get a mortgage, whether you're fit to look after your kids. Uh, even basic items like driver's licenses can be affected in some countries. So as much as we um, want to open the debate on the, the awareness around mental health issues and try and reverse the stigma, people are understandably reticent to kind of make these issues public. So it's something that people approach covertly. Well, you know, that's the irony, isn't it? The internet makes it easy to search things. You can search your own symptoms. Mm -hmm. You can uh, go and talk to people on support groups. You know, there's even a whole ecosystem of websites where you can take like depression surveys and that kind of thing to see if you have the, 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 the symptoms. And of course, it doesn't leave a trail of doctor's visits. It doesn't have this trail that insurance companies might be able to pick up. And it allows you to take your time. You can self-assess and you can actually, you know, talk to people in these communities and figure out whether you need to go and get some help. So a story that came out, I think, on The New Scientist this week turns out that a lot of these mental health help sites are actually selling mm. your data, this thing that you want to keep very private. They're actually selling that data to third-party companies. Aren't there regulations around medical data? Well, of course, there's the uh, GDPR data regulations in the EU, and most sites globally tend to adhere to that because, you know, you can't tell where you're going to get uh, uh, customers to your site mm. coming from. But a team from Privacy International in the UK looked at 136 of the leading mental health sites in the UK, France and Germany, and they found that 76% of those sites carried marketing trackers. And hmm. many of those trackers linked were actually linked to the profile trackers of companies like Facebook, Google and Amazon. Meaning they can identify you. Well, I mean, I'll just be clear, like Facebook, Google, all of these companies, they make it very clear that their trackers can't be used in that way. Um, not just as part of their general terms and conditions, but, you know, there are legal implications under uh, legislation like the GDPR. Mm. But we've seen that some companies like Cambridge Analytica, for example, <laughs> are able to fly below the radar and they can ship data out of those services that maybe they shouldn't be entitled to. So the new scientists, the, the article found that, or Privacy International rather, they've even found that some of the sites sent the results of the depression surveys users took and sold those results directly onto data brokers. So if it is tracker identified, it can be added to who knows mm. what information those companies already have on you. Even if it's still only basic information like IP or location, do you really want ads for cut price antipsychotics or antidepressants following you across the, the web? Mm. It's not always going to be appropriate. You don't want to click a link in your presentation and find an <laughs> ad for cut price Xanax on your client's screen. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you have to ask as well, how long are those sites going to store those questionnaires that you answer? Is it going to be a month, a year? Are they going to keep them forever? Now, we talked about DNA and privacy a few weeks ago. Law enforcement agencies in the US accessing DNA databases. Is this something that's on your mind as well? Well, totally. I mean, on the one hand, you know, that, that story came out that it was uh, using commercial DNA mm. data, uh, databases rather that allowed police to track down the familial link to the Golden State Killer. And uh, he was a notorious serial killer who killed 12 people and raped 45 women in a 10-year spree across California from 1976 to 1986. Now, the same company uh, that broke that case, GED Match, um, they have over 1 million voluntarily uh, entered DNA results uh, in their database. And they've been bought 
over by a company that has an avowed intention to use the site as a law enforcement tool. Commercially? Well, yeah, I mean, I imagine there's got to be a financial component. So Verigin, the company that bought over GED Match, is described as a forensic genetics company. So that's essentially DNA results with a legal application. And the CEO of Verogen, Brett Williams, is quoted as seeing the acquisition as part of a strategy to change the way that crimes can be solved, namely genetically. Can you opt out? Uh, sure. Um, GED Match users can opt out. Uh, I imagine that won't be so easy for new users, but you can see how that loop is starting to tighten. There's so much information about you online, and mm. we're going to talk about facial recognition technologies and how those can be used as markers in Geeks After the Break. So now we get to a point where even our genetic markers are searchable. Which brings us to lawmakers. Well, yeah, there was another lovely story this week. Um, US lawmakers are seeking to force uh, Apple and Facebook to introduce backdoors in encryption protocols to give law enforcement access. Now, the reason for that is because they say terrorists and criminals are using all the secure encryption to prevent eavesdropping and evidence gathering. Mm -hmm. uh, the same encryption, of course, protects the majority of law-abiding um, users. So, again, that brings me to another question. Are our lawmakers fit for purpose in this kind of age of digital economy? To a lot of people, it sounds like a reasonable request. Yeah, but what you're doing is actually announcing to the world that your software has massive security flaws. Um, and those flaws won't be patched, they will be maintained, and that certain people will have mm. the encryption key. Now, that's an invitation to probe for, for hackers. It doesn't matter if they're individual hackers, they're criminals, uh, or state-backed. It puts all of our information at risk, and it highlights that gap between how things work and how our kind of uh, lawmakers mm. actually think they work. Uh, I think that the quote uh, from uh, Apple's uh, user privacy manager, Eric uh, uh, Neuenschwander, was, we've been unable to identify any way to create a backdoor that would work <laughs> only for the good guys. <laughs> of course. You know, that statement in and of itself should be game over. Why does it irritate you? Because it is so futile. Mm. You know, at some point, they have to realize that it isn't physically possible, that people are better protected without the back door and that spy agencies just have to find other ways to surveil. It's just totally pointless. It grabs a few headlines mm. for that particular politician, but it wastes money. Not only does it achieve nothing, but it actively sets the, the companies, the users and the law enforcement agencies back because they're all mired in this discussion instead of getting on with the thing. Mm. As usual, this has been like drawing back a dusty curtain to find a filthy and smudged window that doesn't actually let any light in. So Matt, anything a little bit more hopeful on your mind? Well, when we did the AMA uh, a couple of weeks ago, so Frida brought up 3D printing and there's a, a great story, a 3D printing story this week. So a team at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology collaborated with a tech firm in Israel to 3D print a plastic bunny. <laughs> While I can see how that might make you smile, does it really take such a huge collaboration to 3D print a rabbit? It does when the rabbit contains a set of genetic instructions to print a copy of itself. It's self-replicating? Well, not quite, although that would be uh, a goal <laughs> for the future. Uh, we had a, a story, I think, uh, about a year ago about uh, the band Massive Attack encoding one of their... Uh, mm. albums, encoding it into DNA and embedding that DNA into cans of spray paint. And this is kind of a similar story to that. So a DNA sequencing machine was able to read 
the code uh, embedded in the plastic rabbit and send the print command to a 3D printer that made a second copy of it. That second copy also included the DNA markers and was used to make a third, etc., etc. So they were even able to replicate a rabbit. I like saying replicate a rabbit. Um, <laughs> after it had been stored for nine months, the DNA had actually survived. What real-world applications does this have? Well, DNA is essentially living memory storage, right? It is a person's blueprint. So imagine it being used as an organic thumb drive mm. in the future. Or it could just be used for messages, you know, like the ones you used to get on the run-out groove of uh, vinyl records, you know. Often the, the guy cutting the acetate print of records, he'd add a message either from him or the band. Um, there was a, a mastering engineer called George Peckham. He was infamous for adding the, uh, the phrase, a porky prime cut, and etching it into the, the vinyl groove of the records he cut. So your trainers might have a genetic version of that in the future. They might just include the DNA message, just do it. Uh, that's maybe a little bit lame. Well, yeah, it's very geeky for sure, but <laughs> we don't know yet what the practical applications might be because mm. we're on the wrong side of the development of that science. Um, imagine Captain James T. Musk of the Starship Tesla Prize arriving on Mars full of machines that have their own blueprints genetically encoded which means anyone on the team can fire up a replacement for any machine, for any part, uh, for any of the technology they need to build their, their habitat, or even machines that are sent ahead of colonizers, and they might actually have to wait for a thousand years for the humans to turn up. Uh, I mean, you talked earlier about um, uh, Microsoft Word 3.1 or whatever. Well, we can't even open Word Perfect documents <laughs> from the 1980s. So how would we deal with legacy technology a thousand years down the line on another planet? Oh, I can see this taking us to another story. Uh, this one is from the, the, the website Futurism. Um, and yeah, at least some scientists are starting to think long term. Uh, researchers at the Initiative for interstellar studies, and that is actually real, I haven't made that up, um, they're looking at a potential 1,000-year-long journey to one of the potentially habitable exoplanets mm. that have been discovered. Uh, I think one of the ones they mention is Proxima Centauri b. Is this like that AMA question that Christine asked you about time travel? Um, not quite, although anyone who is interested can read uh, Jodie Taylor's Chronicles of St. Mary's series about uh, time-travelling treasure hunters. But no, these guys genuinely mean a thousand years, generation after generation of people whose sole purpose is to keep on trucking towards a planet that may or may not be inhabitable. And anyway, I mean, they're basically just looking at the science to see if it's feasible. And they reckon, in terms of the physics at least, mm. it will be. Uh, finding people willing to <laughs> commit 30 generations of their descendants to the quest to boldly go is another matter, of course, mm. especially if you get there and it isn't habitable. It's like, what do we do now? Um, but, <laughs> you know, having instructions baked into DNA in technology is going to help those guys because back on Earth by then, we're all going to be cinders of dust orbiting, I don't know, a continent-sized supervolcano. Well, Matt, I hope you got all the answers to the questions you were asking yourself. Uh, there was another episode of AMA, and hopefully, I think, you know, that... The last one. The last, the last <laughs> AMA. This time is Ask Myself Anything. Now, though, uh, I know a lot of people may have been tuning to wait for this moment because they, you know, they don't want to listen to Matt. I'm saying they want to win themselves a PS4. Uh, recently, Sony announced three PS4 bundles, and what I have 
have here with me is the PlayStation 4 Party Bundle that comes with a 500 gigabytes PlayStation 4 Jet Black version that comes with a contrasting white sleeve box. It has two games inside, the EA Sports FIFA 20 and the Crash Team Racing Nitro Fuel, two DualShock 4 wireless controllers and a OnePlus One extended warranty. Now, all this is bundled into an amazing party bundle that's currently on a promotional price of 1,499 ringgit. But Matt, we don't just do announcement like this if it wasn't for something special. Right. No, we don't, definitely. <laughs> so we are giving away this PS4 party bundle and it's dead easy for you. Uh, Sony is also celebrating its 25 years of the PlayStation. The first PlayStation was released on the 3rd of December, 1994. The question is, who was the first PlayStation mascot in North America? Is it A, Crash from Crash Bandicoot, B, Spyro from Spyro the Dragon, C, the Polygon Man, or D, Ratchet from Ratchet and Clank? So again, who was the first PlayStation mascot in North America? Let us know why you deserve to win this PS4 party bundle in less than 20 words, and then you just have to email your name, IC number, phone number, to techtalk at bfm.my along with your answers. Very easy. Very Simple. easy. I'm, I'm sulking because <laughs> Jeff turned down my question, which no. was, what will I be thinking about when I read your answer to my question? Yeah, so that's, that's not the question that we went for. We are going with who was the first PlayStation mascot in North America. Uh, also, you got to give me uh, an answer on why you deserve to win this PS4 in less than 20 words. Name, IC number, phone number, and email it to techtalk at bfm.my along with your answers. So this party bundle is worth 1,500 ringgit and it could be yours. The contest ends on Monday, the 16th of December at 12 p.m. So remember, you have the weekend to think about it. Monday, the 16th of December at 12 p.m. is the deadline. TechTalk at bfm.my is the email address that you need to send in your answers. And there can only be one winner. Uh, we'll have more after this with uh, Geek Squawks, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.